There's an enormous degree of creativity involved in, um, in the most effective uh, leadership. It's the leaders who are at the top of organizations that inspire followers. Uh, you, leaders aren't leaders without followers. The term leadership is, um, is ubiquitous. Welcome to The Common Creative. I'm Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith. And Chris and I are on a mission to lift the veil on creativity in business through the lens of ideas, stories, and visual cognition. And this week's guest is a real global superstar. Dr. Kerry Salkovich uh, is a psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist, and he's changed his career. He's now the founder and owner of Boswell Consulting. Yes, Chris, Boswell Consulting consults to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies across America. And uh, although he hasn't practiced psychiatry for 25 years, he has recently been elected as the president of the American Psychoanalytic Association. That's right. And one of the reasons we were fascinated to get him on the show, not just to hear about his illustrious achievements in his career, but to hear about his journey of transformation from going from psychiatry into the world of business and consulting with Fortune 500 com countries, companies. And we were fascinated to hear how he made that change, why he made that change, and what we can learn from a change. Yeah, Chris, really quite fascinating. And I met uh, Kerry uh, about 15, 20 years ago, and uh, we've been friends from afar since and it was fantastic to have him on the show so uh let's get him on let's get him in kerry sokowitz welcome to the common creative podcast thanks for having me it's great to see you again paul <laughs> it's great to have you on the show kerry great to meet you uh kerry you and i have known each other for well maybe about 15 years or so now we first met at a ted conference in aspen which is uh, was uh, quite an int interesting experience. And Kerry, I was, uh, when I first met you, I was um, struck by the story that you told me about uh, dramatic career change that you had um, in your life. And I, I just love that story. So um, I'm wondering if you could, we could just start off by you sharing that story with us. I'd be happy to, and I fondly remember our meeting one another in Aspen about 15 years ago. It was uh, that was one of the highlights of TED that year for me. Um, I'd be happy to share that story again, and I appreciate your asking. Um, yeah, well, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm uh, I went to medical school just to go back a bit, be you know before the transition that you're referring to. Uh, and, and after graduating from Harvard College, I went back to medical school in my home state of Texas, the University of Texas and uh, had always been interested in, in the mind and the brain, and um, particularly the mind, the functioning of the brain. And, uh, and I would also have been interested in, in leadership and in uh, understanding what made people tick. Um, you know, my, uh, my parents, uh, as, as I've shared with you, Paul, my parents were Holocaust survivors from Poland who had emigrated to the United States and landed in Texas after the Second World War. And, um, as a child, uh, I've always been a reader, and as a kid, I was always uh, reading biographies of leaders. Um, and um, it was a purely emotional interest of mine back then, certainly not intellectual at all. Um, but I was fascinated with questions of how did leaders 
get large groups of people to do good things, and especially how do they get them to do bad things? And so that was a, an emotional interest that undoubtedly uh, had to do with the long shadow of the Holocaust that my parents' history had cast over my, my young life. But in any event, all of that was sort of rattling around in the back of my brain and uh, not really having much uh, known impact. I went to, went to college and then went uh, to medical school with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist because I um, liked the idea of, uh, of helping people. I thought that it was a, a good way to spend a career as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, treating mental illness. Um, but I was particularly drawn to, uh, to understanding the mind in a deeper way and was drawn to study psychoanalysis. So in addition to my psychiatric training, uh, more or less concurrently with that, uh, after a couple of years of it, I began psychoanalytic training at New York University where I was doing my residency. And, um, and thought at the time, this was back in the late 80s, uh, thought that I was going to um, spend my career as a, as, a, as a doctor in private practice in New York where I was living and, and settling down. Um, and, uh, and that's what I did. I, f- I finished my, uh, my residency in 1989 and my psychoanalytic training uh, two or three years later and went into uh, full-time practice uh, more or less immediately and was uh, seeing patients, um, uh, men and women who lived and worked in New York and who were uh, uh, seeking someone to talk to about the emotional complexities of their lives and whatever degree of distress that they were experiencing. And um, so I, was do- I did that full-time, Paul, for about uh, five or six years through uh, the early to mid-90s. And, uh, and in one of those rare moments in a, a psychiatric practice when you, know, you have a five-minute or ten-minute break in between patient hours, uh, of course an hour in uh, psychiatric terms is usually 45 or 50 minutes rather than what we think of a, a, an hour being of 60 minutes. Um, and uh, during one of those breaks when you have a chance to either um, answer a phone call or go to the bathroom, I was just sitting there thinking instead. I'm a big, big fan of sitting and thinking. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I've got this uh, successful, thriving clinical practice, psychiatric practice uh, in New York. Um, I'm in my 30s. Um, is this how I want to spend the rest of my career? And the answer that I heard myself thinking in my head at that time was, I'm not so sure. And that was, frankly, a terrifying moment. Um, one of those moments of brutal honesty with oneself that I highly recommend, but, but that can be unsettling. Um, and, uh, and I tried to interrogate that question and my own answer to my own question. And, um, and I thought there were, there were a few reasons why I felt that way. On the one hand, I, there were aspects of what I was doing that I loved. I loved the idea of helping people. Um, I loved the psychoanalytic uh, theory that was the underpinning of my work. Uh, intellectually, it was, uh, it was really uh, rich, and I still feel that way about both of those things, psychoanalysis and helping people. The part that I um, was uh, gaining this dawning awareness of that was probably not a good fit for my temperament was the idea of sitting in an office, albeit a very comfortable office, all day and seeing one patient after another. The day-in, day-out rigor of doing that was really not a good fit for the more restless side of my personality. And, uh, you know, when I was really honest with myself further, um, I recognized that 
um, the, the most fun, uh, the most alive that I felt in my professional life was not when I was sitting and seeing one patient after another, but was when I was, uh, for instance, going down to the medical school and teaching. Um, or um, I had a role with the American Psychoanalytic Association at the time um, involved in public information, and, and that role, in a sense, forced me to learn how to translate rather complex uh, psychoanalytic ideas into plain English um, for the press and for the public. And, um, and I found that those things really enlivened me, and uh, I liked being more out in the world than... I think probably the more typical uh, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who's very comfortable, if, uh, I would actually say happy, uh, sitting in an office listening to one patient after another. I'm the exception, not the rule. And um, and my sense was, you know, um, it's a good thing that, that most psychoanalysts are not like me and because Lord knows we need them uh, sitting in their offices <laughs> seeing patients all day. They're performing an enormous, uh, valuable service to society. Um, so the, the, the combination of uh, my teaching... And, um, and my experience trying to speak to the public about psychoanalysis and that long-standing interest in business um, was really the catalyst for a career change. I'll, I'll stop at that point. It looked like you were going to... Well, 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 thanks for that. And I recall, though, that, you know, and it was fantastic to get the background of that catalyst, but the other catalyst was, I, I believe, uh, I, I recall anyway, a conversation that you had with a business owner while watching your... Uh, child's soccer match, and uh, and they and they and you and you were just talking. They were talking about their business problems, and anyway, you go on. Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't a soccer match, but it was close, uh, and it was related to one of my kids. You know, after having that um, somewhat of an epiphany moment in my office about my unhappiness, I didn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, just because one recognizes that you may not be doing exactly what you want to do, uh, the the companion piece of what should I do. Uh, isn't necessarily immediately obvious. Um, what what the, the the moment that you're referring to, Paul, and it's kind of you to remember that, is that I was at a cocktail party, um, actually for the incoming parents at uh, at my children's preschool in New York, as one of these kind of obnoxious Upper East Side uh, fancy preschools, and um, that my kids were privileged to attend, and. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the occupational hazards of being a psychiatrist uh, or a psychologist at a cocktail party is that, um, you know, people have a couple of glasses of wine and they loosen up and then unburden themselves. <laughs> and, uh, so I well, was, actually, uh, I, funny you should say that because obviously you don't recall that when we first met, I think I did the same thing. <laughs> well, you know, and I've always loved that because I get to meet people like you that way. <laughs> uh, you know, I, really, I, I really like hearing uh, people's stories and, uh, and if that's what it takes to, to get them started, so be it. And, uh, you know, you and I have been friends ever since, so it worked out pretty well for us. So. Um, in any event, I was at a cocktail party, and this this uh, guy, who was the father of one of my daughter's uh, little classmates at the time, my daughter was, um, I think she was about, uh, uh, she must have been about three or four years old at the time. She's now 29, that one, and so this shows you how long ago this was. <clears throat> and um, I, I was talking to him, and he seemed like a friendly chap, and he uh, was telling me that... Um, he and uh, two friends of his had worked at a big advertising agency, and they had decided as a trio to leave the advertising agency and start an internet marketing company. This is in the early days of the internet, Paul. This was 19, uh, I guess it was 1995, early 95, wow. or maybe late 94, I can't remember. Um, and uh, I was 
standing there talking to him, and I mainly just listened, which is which is what I usually do, unlike in, in this conversation. And uh, uh, he was telling me about his challenges as a first-time CEO, and there were really three of them, at least as I remember. They were all really interesting to me. One was that um, uh, just because he was a CEO uh, for the first time, just because you have the title, it doesn't mean you know how to inhabit the role. And uh, so he was really wrestling with what did it mean to be a leader? What did it mean to be a CEO? Um, the second thing that he was struggling with was that um, he and these two friends of his who had co-founded the company, uh, they had decided amongst themselves that he, the man I was talking to, would become the CEO, which of course meant that the other two were not the CEO. And, uh, and that had changed the dynamics of their friendship and their working relationship. The, the, the power dynamics had shifted among them, even by mutual agreement. And, uh, and then the third challenge was that um, they had gotten some seed funding from the Japanese company that they had left together to start this very American internet marketing company. And there were cultural tensions between the, the Japanese investors and the American operators. Um, so I was... Um, you know, I, I just thought it was, I'm, I'm fascinated by these sorts of things, and I've been interested in issues of leadership and organizational dynamics, but it was a sort of a passing interest until this conversation. And we talked for a while, mainly him talking. I made a few comments, really coming at it from a psychoanalytic perspective. And then he said something uh, that changed my life, um, which was um, he said to me, Look, Carrie, you know, it's been really helpful talking to you about all these things. You've, you've said a few things that have really changed the way I think about my role and, and my business. Uh, when would you be able to start consulting to me and to my company? <laughs> and um, um, I thought for a minute and I said, you know, I think you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> I said, I said it, 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 what you've been saying is really interesting to me, but you obviously need help, and you should probably hire somebody who does that for a living, you know, who talks to CEOs about leadership and organizational problems. And he said, um, he said, Carrie, he kind of pointed his finger at me. He said, you know, the fact that you, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, just told somebody that you've just met who's a CEO that you think he's out of his mind, that makes me want to hire you even more because <laughs> part of the problem I have right now is that nobody talks straight to me anymore now that I'm a CEO. Um, so, um, and at that point, Paul, that's really when a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, you know, maybe there's something to this idea of applying a clinical psychoanalytic perspective to advising leaders. And, um, and so I, I couldn't have been luckier at that moment to have that you know, serendipitous encounter at the cocktail party because he, in a sense, uh, became my first um, consulting client as opposed to my, you know, a patient. Um, and uh, he was kind enough to invite me in to uh, work with him and his his small leadership team. And uh, he was even more kind later on after it was helping him and working out to uh, introduced me to the uh, the founders of a couple of other internet startups in New York. This is back, you know, 95, 96. Um, and, um, you know, being a, a good academic at heart, any self-respecting academic, after you see something two or three times, you declare yourself an expert and write a paper about it. And so that's what I did. Uh, <laughs> I, wrote a, I wrote this paper. It was called Psychoanalysis and the New Economy which was uh, frankly not very good, but it was, uh, it was an attempt, 
uh, I, I've done a lot of writing over the years, and and a lot of, and, and the truth truth be told, a lot of my writing is 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 primarily an attempt to help myself understand what I'm seeing, because I think it, it helps me to organize my thinking and clarify it if I can write about it. And um, so I wrote this uh, wrote this uh, article, and uh, I was. Um, uh, giving it at a, a, a Department of Psychiatry Grand Rounds at a hospital in New York that no longer exists called St. Vincent's Hospital. It's now fancy condominiums. And um, uh, a reporter from the New York Times happened to be there. Um, and uh, she came up to me afterwards and basically she said, look, uh, Dr. Solkowitz, um, uh, I'm not going to write about your article, this paper that you just gave at this presentation because it's kind of too boring and academic, but could I call you sometime uh, and use you as a, you know, as a as a reference on the psychology of business, and I said, you know, I'd be delighted. Um, and she wound up writing a, a, a bit about me that was uh, published in the uh, in, in a Saturday, which is the least read, I think, uh, the business section of the New York Times under the headline something along the lines of um, uh, executives line up for couch treatment, which was perhaps <laughs> an unfortunate <laughs> headline, but it, it sort of worked because it uh, people started to call me, and I. Um, I found myself at that after that article came out with um, a, a, a really very undeserved reputation as no, for knowing something about the psychology of CEOs. Um, the uh, that boring paper. Can, that, can I, uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Can I jump in and just ask a bit more about this transition? And yeah. I, I'm going to do a classic kind of psychoanalyst patient thing. So, please. I, my mum couldn't couldn't explain what I do for a living. She I don't have any idea what I do for a living. I know she won't be listening to this, but um, uh, she she would much life would be much easier for her if I'm a doctor, an accountant, or a lawyer, and then she can tell her friends and everyone know what's going on. And, and I'm sitting listening to you. You mentioned Harvard. You mentioned. Uh, becoming a qualified um, psycho, uh, psychiatrist. So you, you've built a stellar career as a, as a classical, successful professional in the medical field. And now you're talking about switching into becoming a consultant. I, I know consultants that work in church shops. You, know, you, can, you can walk in and get a Saturday shop, suddenly you're a consultant in church. So you're trading that in for a very different kind of career. How did you deal with that idea of no longer being part of that establishment that is medicine and joining this murkier, less well-defined thing called consultancy? Well, I, I appreciate that question, Chris, and particularly the reference to your mother. And I'll, 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 if I have a chance, I'll tell you a story, you. a funny story about my, mo my own mother's reaction to this uh, at the time. But uh, first of all, I should say that I, uh, so it wasn't quite such a stark transition. I, I, it's not as though after, you know, having that experience at the cocktail party and then working with a couple of others and then, you know, writing that article and so on, it wasn't that I just sort of abandoned everything and threw it all away. Um, in some ways, I never really left. And um, uh, I did leave ultimately my medical practice. I closed that about five years later. So there was a transitional period of, I'd say, four or five years during which time I uh, made the decision, which sounded uh, crazy and was terrifying at the time, to your to your question, um, you know, what am I doing? I'm you know I'm I'm turning down clinical referrals and I don't want to see patients anymore and I want to pursue this thing. But but it, it wasn't like an overnight transition. So I was um, you know I was getting more referrals of CEOs to advise and uh, trying to but there are only so many hours in a day and so i had to try, try to make the time which was becoming increasingly difficult and then especially after travel became an important uh, part of it i was traveling not, not all of these clients were in new york um 
at some point I had to make this um, what felt like a a, um, uh, a a stark decision about whether or not to actually close my clinical practice, and it took me it took me a while to close it completely. So uh, by around uh, 2002, roughly, um, I had closed the practice altogether and was in full time consulting. Uh, I should point out a couple of other things, and then I'll tell you the story about my mom. Um, in uh, a- after a few years of of juggling consulting and clinical work. Um, Somebody said to me, "You know, you should uh, you should start a consultancy to to differentiate your consulting work from your clinical work." And I thought, well, that sounded like an interesting idea. And I didn't really know what to call it. And uh, I had a dog at the time, uh, a wonderful Jack Russell Terrier named Boswell, who was named after the biographer of Samuel Johnson. Um, yeah. And I decided to call it the Boswell Group. And um, uh, and, and he was my first partner in a sense. Um, he was a great partner. Um, yeah. But after a while, I realized that there's a, you know, as much as I love this dog, there's a limit to how much you can talk to a dog. I mean, I actually talked to him a lot, but he uh, he didn't have a whole lot to say in return. Um, is and, is um, he the equivalent? Is he, your, is he your equivalent of Pavlov's dog? Not Pavlov's dog, but, you know, it's interesting <laughs> because Pavlov, you know, you know, um, uh, uh, James Boswell was the biographer of Samuel Johnson, a great uh, English diarist and writer. Um, and uh, really, in many ways, it was the first modern, uh, very psychologically deep biography. Um, and um, that's where the name came from in some ways. And I thought it was fitting because in a way I'm learning about leaders, um, not writing their biographies exactly, but certainly understanding their life histories and how it informs yeah, yeah, their yeah. work. Um, uh, and I, I, as I was going along, I found that there were a few other uh, psychoanalytically trained uh, clinicians, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, all with a psychoanalytic background, uh, who were interested in doing similar work, and uh, some had been doing it before me. Um, and I asked them to join the Boswell Group, and even though we didn't quite know what it was, and it's really a wonderful, it's grown over the years. There are now uh, 14 of us uh, in wow. uh, Boston and uh, New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco, and now I spend about half my time in London. And um, and we all have relatively autonomous practices under the umbrella of the group, all informed by some of the same uh, ways of understanding the behavior of individuals and groups. Um, so we, we've been very fortunate. That, that started in 1998, and it's now about 24 years later, and we're still going strong. Wow. Can you, I just wonder if I could ask you about the the focus for the Boswell Group, which sounds like it's, it's about leadership and, and what what the, what makes a leader, how can you make, become more effective as a leader. Um, there's a whole bunch of questions in my mind, but one of them is, are we all leaders? Or, or, or are the people you're talking to, which presumably are at senior levels in business, are they different from other people? And the reason I ask it, I was running a session today talking to a recent recruit, a junior member of staff in this business, and she was saying, I don't get to lead very often. And I jumped in this, no, 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 we're all leaders. You're a leader too, even though. So are leaders different from other people, or is it just that you happen to talk to people with budgets big enough to pay your fees? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, they are different. I think it's a really good question. And, and I, but I, I do want to come back and tell you the story about my mother's reaction to this career change. <laughs> oh, but, sorry. Uh, I didn't, I didn't we'll, <laughs> no, that's all right. We'll come back to that. Um, um, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting question these days. You know, the term leadership is um, is ubiquitous. Um, if you, uh, you know, Google it or look on Amazon, you'll find uh, seemingly uh, countless numbers of books on leadership at the, um, 
sort of the stereotypical airport bookstore where you tend to find uh, books that are a bit more pop psychology or how-to. There's always a book on, you know, seven great behaviors of leaders or seven steps to being a better leader. It's always a number in the title. It appears to appeals to the quantitative side of business people. But the fact of the matter is, I think that leaders are actually rare. Um, I think the uh, there there is a something to be said for trying to um, uh, to spread leadership traits more broadly. But I think true leaders um, uh, don't really learn how to be a leader through reading the latest bestseller on leadership. Uh, leaders are are created early in life, I think, by the crucible of early childhood experience and biology and genetics and a host of factors that um, uh, I think that in many ways the, the core traits of effective leaders leaders are set uh, before adulthood, not in adulthood. So I think I, th- I think that one of the important distinctions uh, that I would uh, raise in answer to your question, Chris, is the distinction between um, you know between leaders and managers, for instance. A, um, a, a former uh, mentor of mine, uh, sadly, who passed away uh, uh, quite a number of years ago, Abraham Zelesnik, who was a he was a psychoanalyst who spent his entire professional career on the faculty of Harvard Business School. Um, wrote a wonderful paper in the Harvard Business Review. It's, it's a classic, probably more than two decades ago, called um, "Managers and Leaders Are They Different?" And the answer is a decided yes. They're very different. Um, that's not to say that in real life, as opposed to in the pure culture of academia, that uh, people in 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 roles in organizations don't have to fulfill aspects of both leadership and managers. But I would say that. That there are far more, and there's no value judgment. I should also point point out in this distinction, it's not like leaders are better than managers or vice versa. We need them both, um, but arguably we need more managers than leaders. Um, it's the leaders who are at the top of organizations that inspire followers. Uh, you, leaders aren't leaders without followers, and it's the yes. it's the it's the followers of leaders who, in a sense, grant leaders the authority to to live out those roles. Uh, to uh, to set the vision for the organization, to set the high-level strategy, to be the public face of the organization, to soothe the, the, the people inside the organization uh, when they need soothing, um, and to show empathy uh, for them. So maybe the opportunity then is to teach people to be better followers if they're not leaders. Oh, I've got an error message on my I, screen. I, I think that's correct. I think that's right. Um, uh, there is no shame in being a, a good, uh, active follower. Followership does not in any way imply passivity uh, or inaction. Um, it's it's really important that we have uh, have inspired followers. There was that great uh, short TED talk. Uh, the name escapes me at the moment, but the importance of the the, the first follower. If you remember it, uh, he was standing. He had a video of a guy standing on the side of a, a festival. Uh, and some idiot drunk dancing and no one was you know, going, ignoring him until the first guy got up and started to bring everyone else up. So, uh, yeah, yeah uh, I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Kerry, let's get back to your mother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to ask yeah. a question of a psychoanalyst about his mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I have... Um, you know, when I reflect back on the last 27 years or so of my career uh, in, in business, um, I've had the privilege of working with uh, CEOs of some of the world's largest 
corporations as well as presidents of universities and heads of cultural institutions. It's been, I, I feel completely charmed. Um, that's all to say that, um, uh, a funny story, um, the reactions that I've gotten from a range of people um, uh, who knew me when I was young um, has been interesting. Uh, the, in, the, in, the, uh, this, in the psychiatric and psychoanalytic world, some people have been very supportive of what I've done and some feel like I've lost my way and have you know, gone astray. Um, but the story about my mother is that um, there was an article many years ago, I think it was nearly a full page in the Wall Street Journal. It was one of these occasional humorous pieces, very light pieces in the journal. Uh, and it was it came out around the time of American Thanksgiving, which, as you know, is a big holiday in the United States, um, time when families get together and have a big feast. And uh, but it's also um, uh, because of that, because all the you know, extended families often get together, these uh, these occasions are often fraught uh, with all the family dynamics that you would expect to play out on the stage of a big holiday dinner. Um, and so a, a, a really creative writer for the Wall Street Journal decided that um, they would interview a few different kinds of business consultants with advice on how to um, have a good Thanksgiving dinner. And, um, and so I was one of the consultants who were uh, for somehow or another uh, selected to be, to be interviewed. And I was obviously coming at it from a psychoanalytic perspective. And so I said a few things and it was, it was nice. And I, I was quite uh, pleased with the way the article turned out. And of course my name was in the, in the Wall Street Journal, which for a, a young consultant is, um, is, a, is a, a big deal. So, uh, and clearly my mother, uh, sadly, she's no longer around. She, she died uh, nearly 15 years ago, but uh, so this article was before that. Um, and my father had passed away uh, even earlier. So she was living alone in, in Dallas and I was in New York. I, of course, was a subscriber to and a regular reader of the Wall Street Journal and my mother was not. And so I, I you know, tore out the clipping from the journal and I, this was, uh, my mother wasn't internet savvy whatsoever. So I, I tore out the article and I put it in an envelope and I mailed it to her and I thought she'd be very pleased and you know proud to see her son's name in the Wall Street Journal. So uh, I didn't hear from her for, for a while. And so about a week goes by and I thought, I, I got to call my mother and find out if she's okay, because normally she would uh, call me and she'd be very excited about this sort of thing. Called her up and she answered the phone immediately. So she was fine. And I said, you know, mom, I, I'm just curious, did you get the article that I sent you where my name, you know, I was quoted fairly extensively in the Wall Street Journal. And she was just silent for a moment. And she said, Carrie, I'm so upset. I said, well, what are you upset about? She goes, in the Wall Street Journal, they refer to you as Mr. Sulkowitz rather than Dr. Sulkowitz. Are you not a doctor anymore? <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was going to be you get roasted because you're giving your own mum advice on how she should yeah. run Thanksgiving. And it was yeah. like, that's not your place. I run Thanksgiving, but you don't run Thanksgiving. <laughs> apparently, the, uh, apparently the journalistic convention of the journal is to you know, identify people as Mr. or Ms but not with your academic uh, title. And, uh, you know, my son, the Jewish doctor, had, had decided to relinquish being a doctor. This was a terrible thing. Well, which was my going in point, is that you're on a slippery slope downhill from, from being a respected doctor to the gloomy depths of being a consultant. What next? Where else could you slide to? Well, you know, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but in Australia, uh, once a doctor becomes a surgeon, he becomes a mister. Uh, no longer a doctor. I don't know if that's the case in the states. No, that's no. We don't do it uh, in, in the in the states. Uh, once a doctor, always a doctor, and I still consider yeah, myself yeah. a doctor. 
Yeah. yeah, well, they become they become Mister once they become, become surgeons, Mr. which is really. Uh, I'll tell you why. This has nothing to do with anything, but I will tell you why. It's because at the beginning of surgery, doctors didn't perform the surgery themselves; it was considered beneath them, and they would get usually a barber in to actually perform the surgery itself. Right. And of course, the barber wasn't a qualified doctor, so they were Mister. And the doctor directed the surgeon how to do the. Uh, do, that's doctor very interesting. I did not know that. <laughs> Um, Kerry, um, I need to ask you a question, and maybe along the, the lines of Chris's question around leadership. As you know, we, we call ourselves Two Common Creatives, and we have this little mini-series, Founder Seekers, and so we're really interested in your story of transition. But I'm also interested in your view of the amount of creativity that these successful leaders show, or, or how it plays out in their roles uh, in leading these large companies and organisations. The, the answer is a lot. A lot of creativity is involved in being a good leader, and uh, it's one of the most uh, uh, thrilling and, uh, and wonderful aspects of the leadership role is an opportunity to be creative. Um, it's, uh, the creativity takes many forms, um, whether it's uh, the more obvious ones, which is coming up with some new business idea that's a, absolutely a creative process from my perspective, uh, whether it's a new product or a new service or even just a new way of running the business, a new way of structuring an organization involves um, a significant degree of creativity. Uh, it, and, and underpinning that, that creative act is a certain degree of emotional freedom that's necessary to experiment, to take some chances, to be willing to do something that might fail. Um, and uh, to try it, and uh, and if it doesn't quite work, then that's okay. Then try it again. Learn something from the prior attempt. Um, so I think there's a there's an enormous degree of creativity involved in um, in the most effective uh, leadership. I think that uh, in addition to the creativity inherent in the most effective leadership, I think one of the tasks of uh, of leaders and the best leaders do this uh, rather naturally is to create the, the conditions that have sometimes been described as psychological safety in their team, which um, uh, enables the, their team members, the, the, the people who report to them on their leadership team, uh, to also be creative. Um, what you don't want is a leadership team in which everybody feels that they have to um, essentially try to read the CEO's mind and to just give them what they want or say, you know, agree with what the CEO says. You want a team that also has that kind of emotional freedom uh, to take chances, to be wrong uh, without fear of, uh, of shame or punishment. Mm. Actually, no, that's really interesting. And, you know, we've just completed a series on the neuro, on what we call neurocreativity and the neuroscience of creativity. And that was the thing that came up. Uh, towards the end of the series actually about this importance of psychological safety and in the two years or two and a half years that Chris and I have been running this program it's the first time that it's been brought up so it's it's very interesting that you've brought it up in the very next recording. Yes. Um, Kerry where I was going with my question was that often you know like a, a story that I'll share is I was working with a CEO or, or chairman of a very large uh, national law firm and uh, he was sitting there in his yellow jacket and green tie and telling me about this winery that he'd done and these property developments. And in the same breath, he said, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Um, but he was obviously create, very creative, but he, like a lot of people, misunderstand or mistake uh, creativity for artistry. 
And so I was just wondering whether these, you know, these CEOs and leaders obviously have a great deal of creativity. Do they acknowledge it as creativity, uh, or do they do they also sort of shy away from the the, the, the name? Um, I think they do shy away from the name. Uh, some of it may actually be humility, which is not a, a term that is often associated with CEOs. But frankly, the best CEOs that I know are actually incredibly humble. Um, it's and it's an it's a, a, a vitally uh, important aspect of, of good leadership is is humility rather than needing to take credit for everything oneself. And so the the CEO that you just described, Paul, <coughs> could be quite humble about um, what is indeed creative. I don't know. Uh, he, w- he wasn't. Not, he wasn't. A, he, no, he wasn't a humble sort of guy. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I was wrong about that. That's okay. Uh, um, but. Um, but I think you know, the, we're, we're, I, I, and a subset of leaders, not all leaders are, of course, the same, right? They're not cut from the same cloth. In fact, no two leaders are alike, which stands to reason. Um, I think that the most creative ones are the ones that might be more typically thought of or described as the more entrepreneurial leaders. Um, and um, uh, there, I think there's a, a high correlation between entrepreneurialism or entrepreneurship and creativity. Uh, mm. Because uh, um, coming up with the idea of a new venture is, I would say, by definition, a creative act. It's creating mm. something from nothing, starting with Without just an idea. Correct. Gary, I was just wondering if there's a sort of there's an inbuilt contradiction for leaders in business anyway, which is that to get up the ladder, you've got to be a great follower. You basically learn how to mimic what other people do. Um, you learn what the rules are and, and play them to your advantage, if you like. And then there comes a moment when you're leading, and suddenly you have to be a different kind of person. Uh, and you're suggesting a leader is a different kind of person than a follower. So do successful leaders learn how to make that transition, or are they always leaders even though they're in a position of being a follower? It, am I right that it's tough to become a, a leader after having been a follower? It, it is. I, I, I think a lot of people who work their way up the proverbial corporate ladder um, are, uh, are are very good managers, um, and uh, and there's a dose of leadership undoubtedly thrown in the higher up one gets. Uh, but some people who are uh, the classic sort of manager operator have a really hard time uh, when they're promoted. Actually, not so much, it's not a Peter Principle kind of idea where you're promoted beyond your, your capabilities technically, um, but you're promoted from what is essentially uh, a, a managerial role, which one is uh, likely inhabiting highly successfully, but then to, um, to move from that to being at, in the very top job, which is a leadership role, um, is uh, can be very difficult, and um, it's hard for some of those people to let go of some of the the daily activities that they have been so good at, and that undoubtedly have um, been a major factor in their success all the way up to that point. Um, the, those aspects of their roles that uh, that they have relied on and have been such a part of the, their success become increasingly unimportant. Uh, once they're in a leadership role, they, 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 and, and it's a very difficult transition uh, for some to make. I, I used to work in various big companies in marketing and innovation roles. I remember that moment I was promoted the first time as a relatively junior guy. I, I was promoted to a position where I had people reporting to me. It was the first time that had ever happened to me. 
And I, I remember going to see someone in HR and saying, I've never had people working for me before. Can you, how do I do this? I, I genuinely wanted to know. And I remember this look of blankness from the HR person. kind of, <laughs> you think we know this? <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> there was no answer. I was shocked. Um, Maybe things have changed a bit since then, but uh, I'm not suggesting I don't that's think so. necessarily a proper leadership role, but <laughs> good luck was basically the, yeah. the message. I, I think that if, um, you know, I, I, I think really what, what is refreshing to hear you tell this story is that um, is, is the honesty in that. I think if everyone were as open as you uh, clearly feel comfortable being, um, uh, there were uh, you, you would hear a lot of people talking about the complete bewilderment they feel when they are first put into a, a, a leadership role or even a, a role managing other people. Um, uh, there, there's uh, there, there's often very little preparation for that. The only the, the best preparation is simply doing it and uh, and learning yeah. by experience. Yeah, Kerry, it's been absolutely fabulous, and we uh, we could talk all, all day or all night in our case and all day in your case, but I'm. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a busy day ahead with for you. So, listen, I really want to say thank you. It's been great to reconnect, and it's been so fantastic to to hear that story. Um, and it, and it's been uh, it's been sensational. We are going to in the in make sure that we refer out of respect to your uh, late mother. That's going to be Dr. Kerry, uh, yes. so that uh, she. Uh, so, so there's no no confusion uh, on that. So look, thank, thank thanks so much for your time, carrying your insights into into leadership and creativity, and and to transitioning in a career. It's been fabulous. And thank, uh, thank you, you so much, much Paul and Chris. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been it's been great, great talking to you both, and I would uh, welcome the chance to talk again. Well, Chris, that's uh, that's fantastic. I um, I think you made the comment you'd love his voice, so it would be be fantastic. The shame he's no longer. A psychoanalyst, it would have been great to lie on the couch and have a chat to him. It would. I was really struck by the way he, he made a point about it was, it, he feels more alive when he's teaching. And, and maybe that's a lesson for all of us is to think about what makes you feel alive and to pursue that and take, take your career in that direction. Yep. And look, the other thing I took away from his interview as well was this thing that, you know, and he's worked with a lot of leaders that not everybody is a leader and not everyone's a born leader and a lot of people can't be taught to be leaders and there's no harm in being or being a, a good follower so i thought that was really interesting because you know today's you know world everyone wants to be a leader and some people have the view that everyone is a leader so i thought it was a great insight it was fantastic to catch up with him again and a privilege to have somebody so well known so illustrious on our show i feel honored and yeah, I'll take your lead on that. Follow, follow, follow your lead. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this show. We'd love to hear from you. Um, please leave a comment. Please give us a rating, a five-star rating if possible. Um, and tell your friends. It'll help us spread the word about the common creative and it'll do us a good favor. If you could tell your friends to sign up and tune in next week. Fantastic. Yes, great for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in and we'll uh, see you next week. Cheers.